Welcome to the Mindfulness in Medicine podcast, a podcast where we explore the role of mindfulness and related topics in medicine, created and produced by medical learners at McGill University. Hello everyone, my name is Zoe O'Neill and I'm a second year medical student at McGill University. I am joined today by Dr. Joe Flanders. Dr. Flanders is a clinical psychologist who obtained his PhD in clinical psychology from McGill University and completed a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's also an assistant professor at McGill University uh, in the Department of Psychology and the founder and director of Mindspace, a well-being organization in Montreal. Dr. Flanders, thank you so much for joining me today. So just to get started, uh, how would you describe what you do professionally? First, let me just say thanks for having me, and it's really fun to do this. And uh, I'm a big fan of McGill Med School and love working with students there. So this is a privilege for me to be here. You wanted to know what I, how I would describe my professional activities. Uh, I'm still wondering about that every day. Um, at base, I'm a psychologist and I have a private practice, and I see number of clients in that context. These days, of course, it's by video conference, which took some getting used to. I'm also a mindfulness teacher, so I teach mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy at Mindspace. These are group-based programs um, that we can get into, I suppose, later. Um, I'm also a MBSR and MBCT um, trainer and mentor, so people that want to learn how to be uh, mindfulness teachers can come and, and train with me. Um, and, um, what else do I do? So I occasionally will do, you know, lectures and workshops and, um, like seminars and stuff in organizations that want to improve their well-being through mindfulness. Um, and I'm, I might be leaving some things out, but that's kind of the core of what I do. And um, one of the things I love about my job is the variety. It's really nice to be working with different people and with different modalities and, um, in different places and stuff. So. Yeah, that's that's kind of the overview. It sounds like you wear a lot of different hats. That's very fascinating. So can you just tell our listeners a little bit about your training and, and what kind of led you down this path of, of really incorporating mindfulness into your professional life? Well, um, I come from a background of like very high achieving, uh, a very high achieving family. Both of my siblings are physicians. Actually, both got their degrees from McGill Med School. My dad's a doctor, a well-known surgeon in Montreal. And uh, for whatever reason, I wasn't, uh, didn't feel quite that fired up to go into medicine and really felt quite lost because I didn't know what else, what other options were available to me. Um, but I did know that when I, um, I was studying philosophy and psychology as an undergrad and I um, uh, took a meditation class um, with a teacher who happened to also be my uh, cognitive neuroscience professor in one of my undergrad classes. Uh, and he had this amazing way of combining, you know, up-to-date neuroscience and psychology research with the sort of ancient Buddhist wisdom. And that combination was like just overpoweringly cool to me. So um, I found it very interesting. I started meditating and I just started to feel a little more grounded, a little more focused, better able to manage my stress, um, and just kind of a little bit more in touch with my values and, and a little more fired up for my life, basically. And, um, you know, sort of kept that meditation practice going for a while. 
that was in Toronto. I came back to Montreal to do my PhD and, um, you know, had this meditation practice going on the side for, for most of those years, but um, just thought of it as a personal thing. Um, I met some people from Madison, Wisconsin and learned that that's, that was really at the time, like a, an important center for mindfulness research and, um, and, and clinical care and just got really excited to um, try to get over there and do a postdoc, which I was fortunate enough to do. And it was just totally blown away. It was just like this amazing convergence of um, neuroscience researchers, the very famous uh, neuroscientist there named Richie Davidson. And I took a class with him and just like hung out with all these really smart people who were studying meditation and practicing meditation themselves. And I, you know, did MBSR there and, um, just got really excited about um, the potential of combining this personal interest of mine with a professional uh, interest. And um, I came back to Montreal to basically do that. And, um, you know, Madison was, was pretty far ahead generally in terms of uh, how mindfulness was incorporated into daily life, into organizations, into healthcare settings, into research. Um, but compared to Montreal, it was like a different century. And there was not a lot going on here in the mindfulness community at the time. And I just decided to sort of plant my flag and say, I'm doing mindfulness. And, um, you know, I got um, certified to be, a, you know, MBSR and MBCT teacher and grew a mindfulness program. And that eventually turned into Mindspace Wellbeing, which uh, we're coming up on its 10th birthday. And um, again, it's really just this amazing uh, privilege that I have that's something I'm very passionate about personally um, lines up with something I'm able to do professionally. And I, I just feel very grateful to be able to do that. Thank you for sharing that. It, it does seem like Mindspace is kind of the culmination of all of these steps that you took. Would you mind describing what Mindspace is, what its mission is um, for our listeners? So Mindspace is a center for well-being. And uh, in that, uh, we have a variety of services, including a traditional psychotherapy center where people can come and do CBT and ACT and uh, experiential therapies like EFT. Um, and we've got some really uh, smart and talented therapists that are uh, working with us. Um, we have a kind of a mindfulness center as well where we offer mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness cognitive therapy, mindful self-compassion and sort of related programs. Um, and then we have a uh, sort of corporate uh, well-being or organizational well-being for, um, you know, organizations that recognize well-being as an important kind of strategic priority. And we do everything from like lunch and learns to uh, workshop series to transformational consulting. And um, it's not a common combination having like a consulting firm tied into a psychology clinic and a mindfulness center but we're we feel very strongly that it makes sense because we're all very passionate about um, reducing suffering in the world and promoting well-being and people need to do that sometimes with a therapist sometimes in a group setting in a meditation class and sometimes it happens at work so our our um, kind of mission statement is uh, healthy minds for a better world because we're all uh, convinced that if we can help people make better decisions, take care of themselves better, improve their relationships, um, that overall, collectively, we'd be much happier, healthier, and more balanced. 
Yeah, MySpace is certainly unique in that sense, and I'll definitely make a link to it in the show notes so that people can explore the website more fully and kind of explore all of the things that are on offer. It's very, very cool. Um, So just moving right along here, there are so many things that I would, uh, if I had all the time in the world, I would ask you a million questions. But for the purpose of today's podcast, we um, we'll just be focusing on the utility of mindfulness and mindfulness-based interventions for anxiety disorders and just really honing in there. So just to ensure that everyone who's listening is on the same page, how is anxiety defined clinically and what kinds of different what different kinds of anxiety are there? Because anxiety is kind of an umbrella term. Well, first of all, um, I want to say that anxiety is not a clinical term. Uh, it's often interpreted that way, um, but anxiety is an emotion, right? Um, sadness is not a clinical term. Uh, fear is not a clinical term. Anxiety is just a, a mood state or an emotion, and it's a very normal, valid thing for people to experience. And I like to think of it as uh, similar to fear in the sense that there is a threat that our uh, nervous system is preparing to respond to. And typically that takes the form of a fight or flight response. That's very classic uh, formulation. Um, You know, uh, what what comes out of a sympathetic arousal. Um, And basically it's preparing to deal with some threat. And whereas fear, there is a clear and imminent threat, like you're about to be eaten by a predator. Anxiety, the threat is much less well-defined. So it might be in the future. It might be uh, something in, that is uncertain. Um, and so we're sort of, our bodies or sort of nervous systems are sort of left trying to figure out how to deal with a threat that isn't actually present, right? Um, and so, and the threat can take many forms. It could be um, in the case of like social anxiety, for example, it could be uh, a concern about others judging us badly in one way or another. And so, of course, we don't know that that's happening. It's happening behind someone else's eyes and we don't, you know, what they're actually thinking, but the possibility that someone might think we're a loser or, or um, you know, not fitting in in some way could trigger this defensive reaction. Um, obviously, there are people that are concerned about uh, safety and germs. Now we're maybe getting into more of the OCD flavor. Um, you know, uh, there are people that feel very uncomfortable in crowds. Now we're getting into agoraphobia. Uh, and often the threat there is being stuck, not being able to escape. Um, people have panic attacks, which is another form of anxiety where um, there's a reaction to one's internal body sensations, like a pounding heart and or thoughts related to those body sensations, like I'm going to die or I'm going crazy. And that kind of just spirals this uh, anxiety reaction. So it's, uh, you know, a, a defensive uh, response to some perceived threat that is a little bit abstract or in the future. That's my best framing that I can give you about anxiety. And and I will say to double down on this notion that it's not clinical, um, we are all living in, a, in an era where um, we're exposed in varying degrees to a novel coronavirus and it is not immediately present. We can't look at it or smell it or see it or someone else walking around with it. Um, particularly if they're asymptomatic, um, we don't really know how to respond. And so anxiety is an absolutely appropriate emotion to experience in this moment. It might be like a 18 month anxiety reaction. Um, the, 
The question as to whether it is clinically significant or not all depends on the context and the severity. So if you're walking around feeling a little uneasy these days, I would say, congratulations, you have a functioning nervous system. If you can't leave the house because you're too afraid of catching the coronavirus, um, maybe that response is a little exaggerated and we can talk about something that's clinically significant. So it all depends on the context and it all depends on the severity. Thank you for making that distinction. The terminology becomes very important here. So can you speak to the, the kind of evidence that exists for um, the use of mindfulness or mindfulness-based interventions for anxiety and maybe perhaps the anxiety disorder that more clinical on the clinical spectrum? So interestingly, um, there is no well-known mindfulness-based intervention that targets anxiety in particular. There are some adaptations of protocols and this and that, but uh, the, the best known programs are not designed to treat anxiety disorders, okay? Um, the best known mindfulness intervention is called mindfulness-based stress reduction, and it is a very general introduction to uh, mindfulness meditation and how it could help well, reduce stress, which is like the most general possible application you can imagine, right? By design, that was, the name was very carefully chosen. Um, and what that does is basically train people to become more comfortable with discomfort when it arises in any form, whether it's anxiety or craving or down mood or pain or whatever, and help people learn how to be with and stay with discomfort rather than get into all kinds of problematic habits that make the whole thing worse. Drinking, overeating, overworking, avoiding relationships, this kind of stuff. And it so happens that if people get good at learning to tolerate discomfort and confront and be with these uncomfortable things, um, it turns out to be very helpful for managing anxiety. So tons of people come, they're feeling anxious, they do a MBSR, and you know will feel much less anxiety by the end. Now, uh, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which um, is an adaptation of MBSR, is designed was initially designed to prevent relapse in depressive episodes, and now has been proven to do so as effectively as antidepressant medication at much less cost. Um, because so the research was done on, on depressive relapse, but because in the real world it's very hard to find people that have like pure depression and no anxiety, um, the the very like well-defined research protocols and um, like target populations didn't quite match the real world. So there's a ton of people who do this depressive relapse prevention program, but also have anxiety. Um, and then over the years. Um, these groups just started to get uh, more and more heterogeneous to the point where now it's full of people with, with, who are recovering from depression and full of people who are suffering from anxiety. And there is evidence to suggest that it is helpful in reducing symptoms of both. Um, and then more generally, there is you know, mindfulness adaptations of uh, well-known uh, therapeutic modalities like cognitive behavior therapy. Some people might have heard of ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy. Again, these are general kind of like skill building therapeutic interventions that use mindfulness to help create better capacity for coping with anxiety. 
But like many other aspects of mental health, a lot of it comes down to a capacity to like be with and work skillfully with um, discomfort. And in this case, discomfort that stems from anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's very interesting. I think you, you've kind of already touched on this a little bit, but can you elaborate about the, the mechanisms involved in mindfulness and, and why this is useful in modulating anxiety? That's great. I'm glad you asked that because there's an important piece of my previous answer that I would have wanted to add, but felt I was getting it was getting a bit long. And feel free to redirect me if I'm if I'm off uh, off target at any point. So um, it's interesting to note, by the way, that some of the best research on this uh, is done in Canada uh, at, with a by a U of T professor named Zindel Siegel. Um, he's one of the three co-founders of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And, he, you know, he's doing some very interesting kind of mechanism research these days. And there is a very persuasive um, uh, publication, maybe from a couple of years ago, about, I guess, the best guess about the mechanism. And he claims, and I totally agree, that the most important ingredient in a successful mindfulness intervention is participants learning what is called decentering. Okay. Um, the model here is that if you are prone to depression, uh, that will show up in certain cognitive biases. So you're going along, you're making the best of your life and you're working, you have your relationship or your family or whatever, and something goes wrong, right? You don't get the promotion you wanted. And that piece of bad news or that piece of adversity um, kind of like hooks into this, this bias and this tendency to sort of think negatively. I didn't get the promotion. I'm not going anywhere with this job. I'm not going in with my life. And because of this information processing bias and this um, pattern of negative thinking, the mood can start to spiral down, right? So you, maybe you're, you sleep a little bit longer. You have a little bit less energy. You start working out less. You don't eat as well. And that spiral just kind of gains momentum. And the whole thing, according to Zindel Siegel and his colleagues, is this tendency to like um, engage too much with our thoughts or believe too much into our thoughts, right? It is possible to not get the promotion and say, you know, sorry, you no, not, not get the promotion, have the thought that this job isn't going where or my life isn't going anywhere and ever, and just notice that that's a thought passing through awareness without actually believing it and buying into the story. Okay, so the capacity to have thoughts without being thoughts turns out to be incredibly valuable in managing anxiety and many other things for that matter. And what's cool is that, again, back to this publication I was mentioning earlier, they were able to show using a, a fairly reliable measure of decentering that when people learn to do that in cognitive therapy or when people learn to do that in a mindfulness intervention, they were able to show successful outcomes. But when they when people were not able to do this develop this decentering skill, um, the outcomes weren't as successful. So that really appears to be the active ingredient, whether you're doing it through meditation or cognitive restructuring or whatever. Mm-hmm. Very interesting, and definitely rings true with a lot of the the, the mindfulness uh, training that I've done. So that's very interesting. Um, so are you able to share some practical mindfulness tech? 
mindfulness-based techniques for reducing anxiety. So perhaps if there are things that people can do acutely during an anxious episode or are there other things that people can do preventatively um, if they're dealing with anxiety over like a chronic period of time? Well, uh, this is very top of mind for me. I'm having a very stressful week, so I'll be able to speak uh, very directly even about my own experience and some of the tips that I give to people um, and in no particular order. I would say one of the most one of the easiest and most interesting things that you can do when you're feeling anxious is to uh, start using your senses, right? I talked earlier about the spiral that negative thoughts, anxious thoughts or depressive thoughts can get us into. And uh, it's like we can use our eyes and ears or even our sort of interoceptive uh, kind of sense Anytime, anywhere, costs nothing. It's just a shift in attention. So I really like to just look around. What do I see? Look, there's a beautiful plant over there. And just like um, direct my attention to using my senses. I'm getting out of my thoughts. I'm getting into the present moment. There's often interesting sounds to listen to if you're outside. Um, you can feel your butt in the chair that you're sitting on and, and just get a sense of the, the sensations there. Um, get into your breathing, feeling the sensations of that, get into your feet in contact with the ground. All these things are a great, great way to step out of this ongoing thought stream and into the, into the present moment. So that's like a no brainer. Anybody can do it. You don't need any training at all. Um, to maybe scale up the scale a little bit, um, it could be really valuable to, um, when you're walking or when you're sitting down, just close your eyes for two or three minutes and take a few deeper breaths. Maybe a kind of top-down, you know, uh, arousal regulating intervention where you're just calming your sympathetic arousal just for a couple of minutes, just like a real little relaxation exercise or something. Um, and, um, you know, meditation um, is obviously the best kind of training opportunity to really get traction with mindfulness skills. Um, and that would be, you know, sitting for longer, picking an anchor, finding the breath, uh, and just staying with it and continuing to use your attention um, by bringing it back into the present moment, bringing it back to the anchor whenever the mind wanders off. Um, and then, you know, the more you do this, uh, the more self-awareness and just a deeper sense of what one needs to feel well. Uh, and that often extends to like, you know, just day-to-day -day habits and uh, relationships and where we're located in a sort of broader network of relationships and activities. Um, you can really start to get some interesting momentum with personal growth and development and, and um, kind of making the world a better place in some deeper way. So that's a, a bit of a sketch in terms of like how to start from those moment-to-moment -moment things um, and then getting into the, the deeper end of the pool when it comes to mindfulness practice. Yeah, thank you for sharing those. So useful and very practical. So that's fantastic for people to hear. Can you, I know that you said earlier that at Mindspace that you offer kind of group-based therapy. And I, I'm curious about what's the interplay between one's individual mindfulness practice and these group-based therapies? Do they always happen in tandem? Are there particular patients that benefit more from one or the other? And how do you make those kinds of decisions? Great question. Um, 
I don't have like a, a clean algorithm for you on that. It's, it's very contextual. It often depends on the person, where they're at, what their needs are. Sometimes it comes down to severity. Um, usually people that are suffering more and need more one-on-one -on -one connection, one-on-one -on -one care, one-on-one -on -one guidance, um, that will be done in individual psychotherapy, obviously. Um, it's very important to know actually that uh, mindfulness is not without any risks or adverse effects. It can be uh, ch very challenging to stop and connect with your body and feel that pain or really acknowledge that worry in the back of your mind. Like for many people, it's just easier to keep going, right? To, to, un to just keep doubling down on these avoidant um, kind of patterns. Um, and interestingly, as a quick tangent from there, um, there's evidence to suggest that when people start uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction for the first few weeks, their anxiety actually goes up, okay? Because it's like, oh, okay, no, you can't keep drinking or eating or just like overworking or whatever. You have to like sit here with yourself, right? Good luck with that. And before you gain any comfort with it, you have to develop the skill of meditation. So people will, you know, two, three, four weeks in are like feeling worse. And how discouraging is that? Of course, as the as the eight-week program progresses, they start to settle in and feel much better by the end. Um, but it is, it's, it can definitely be a challenge, right? Um, I personally think that if people are feeling up to it and um, are like, have what it takes to join a group, I think that it's a much more powerful intervention in the sense that you get this random group of strangers coming together, usually like 15 to 20 people. They're all suffering in some way or else they wouldn't be there. The teachers, if they're doing a good job, create an environment that's very safe. It's very supportive. It's very open to whatever shows up. People very quickly um, engage with the process, meditate a lot, show up and feel very connected and engaged and like... Um, grateful that for the support of other people. Meditation suddenly becomes easier because you're surrounded by other people that are doing the same thing. And you get this kind of like tidal wave of healing energy in the room that is very difficult to create in the one-on-one. -on -one. It's unbelievably powerful. And I've never done a group, I don't know how many groups I've done, like dozens maybe. I've never been in a group that didn't have that outcome of people like really coming together really appreciating each other invariably there's a comment in the last week of people sort of feeling like well what do we do now like we're not going to meet and can we arrange some other way to get together and this kind of stuff so that adds a huge amount and i think it speaks to um just the power of human beings coming together in an open non-judgmental space how much many of us are really craving that how alienated we are from our communities and things like that um, so yeah, that's that's kind of the that's how I think about the two different options. Yeah, that certainly rings true for me. I find that if I'm meditating with a group of people, it really does have an impact on my motivation and and all of the other components that are really important in maintaining a personal practice. So I can I can definitely appreciate that. Sorry to interrupt. I just want to say one other quick thing that I really like about that idea is that um, if if meditation is a skill and you want to get better at it um 
it's a big challenge to sort of sustain it. It is a, somewhat of a solitary activity. So there's a, a famous uh, mindfulness teacher named Chade Meng Tan, who's actually a former Google employee. He likes to create the analogy to a sports team uh, or to sports. If you want to get good at sports, like there are a lot of built-in reinforcers. Like often you're on a team, right? So there's this, there's the social connection. Um, there's often like the reward from getting better at the skill. Um, and, you know, people are just very intrinsically motivated to do sports. And the same logic can be applied to learning and um, kind of maintaining a meditation practice. It's that much easier if you're uh, sort of in contact with other people, doing it together, and like even talk to each other about skill development. So uh, it's very important to be part of community when you're trying to learn how to meditate. Certainly. And I, I think it's really important, too, that you mentioned earlier and just now again that there, there can be a hump almost that there's like a meditation can be very difficult and sometimes people come to meditation expecting to have just bliss and relaxation immediately and I, I know you mentioned earlier that first you know at the beginning of an MBSR um, training you actually have an increase in anxiety so kind of related to that um, I know that for, for some people meditation really can exacerbate anxiety symptoms and how as a as a as a clinician or as a as someone who treats anxiety how do you recognize those patients who are not going to benefit from a mindfulness-based intervention well um any good uh mindfulness-based stress reduction program will have like a rigorous screening process which includes typically a bunch of questionnaires and a one-on-one -on -one interview and um I guess, I mean, I think in general, it's not that hard to identify someone um, who won't do well in a group. Um, I might think that because I've been doing it for a long time, but you might just ask them, it's like, how do you think you're going to do sitting in a room with 15 other people with your eyes closed and like being invited not to move too much? And many people will say like, "Yeah, I didn't realize, I'm not sure I'm up for that. Um, and I think we, I think, um, Mindfulness teachers can underestimate how challenging that could be for a lot of people, right? We're all busy. We're all engaged in this like continuous flow of like reinforcement and, and like regulating forces from our environment uh, and like just different tricks we've come up with to just stay kind of relatively balanced or regulated um, and stopping and doing nothing really upsets those coping strategies, right? Um, and so there's a lot of care that is required to unpack that a little bit uh, and slowly ease people into the possibility of just being, you know, by themselves with themselves for a few minutes every day. Um, so it's actually not particularly difficult to screen people out on that. It comes up pretty quickly. Um, and I, again, I think the, the group and a skilled teacher can go a long way in helping people kind of feel safe in working through that. Mm -hmm. So I would also really love to contextualize this conversation and place it where we are, which is in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic. So can you comment on how the current pandemic might be affecting 
people's mental health and might be affecting either anxiety that already existed or maybe didn't but has arisen since the beginning of the pandemic? Well, my God, where to start? I mean, it's it's been absolutely crazy. Um, I've done more therapy in the last six or eight months than I've done ever before. Just the pace is crazy. We've got an insane waiting list at Mindspace for individual therapy because the need is so great. And we're really trying to actively recruit new therapists to help. And all the clinics and psychologists are, are full like that too. Um, I mean, there are the obvious ones that I touched on earlier, just this, um, the sense that there is this threat out there that's invisible, that could potentially kill you. And if it doesn't kill you, it might make you sick for a really long time. Um, and I think those um, risks are a bit exaggerated by the media. My understanding is that for the vast majority of people, COVID is not, uh, doesn't make you very sick. Um, of course, the question of like who it makes very sick and who it kills is a bit of an open question at this point. Um, so there's just the, just the anxiety around and the fear sometimes around like, what if I contract this virus? And then that is just obviously very challenging for people that are sensitive to that. Um, but I what I'm seeing is more of a, uh, like a broader impact. So, you know, we just um, shift into this like red zone thing with the government, right? And and that comes with all kinds of restrictions, right? So you can't socialize. You can't socialize. Like what, what does that mean, right? Uh, and that means you're, you're, so you're not getting the social contact that you probably need, physical as well as, you know, verbal and whatever. Um, very, it's very obvious to, anyone that looks at this, that like physical touch and like real social connection is essential for us to feel well. We're social animals, like period. Um, and then, you know, you're stuck inside with your family and our families, you know, members of our family push our buttons like nobody else. And that's why the divorce rate is, you know, went up after the lockdown in Wuhan, why it's going up now here. Um, relationships become much more complicated. Um, we don't, you know, they're, they're shutting down all the sports uh, leagues um, later today. So now you're not getting as much exercise. It's just like across the board, the stress is going up and our outlets for coping with it and tolerating it and like overcoming it are being taken away from us uh, one at a time. And uh, so it's just this sort of all boats rising with the tide in the sense of like just uh, a, a very broad-based general increase in stress risk. And to me, the number one, the number one in all of that is the sort of social isolation piece. And that's not only if you're, you know, single or living alone or something, because you can be very isolated, even in your own family. And we know that social isolation is just catastrophic for your physical health. It's just, it'll, you'll end up with heart disease and um, all kinds of other stress-related problems. It's just a terrible thing. And the thing that, that strikes me every time I go outside is that normally in a crisis, what helps us through is that we come together, right? We come together, we like align around a common enemy or a common purpose. And it's like, there's this difficulty, but there's also this amazing upswell of connection and community, right? We can't do that. Or we could do it through this like fake, you know, online version of that. And it was even worse, not only can we not really and truly come together, but we are actually threats to each other because we might be carrying this virus around. So instead of like 
when I go jogging or I go out for a walk or whatever it is, instead of looking at someone else and saying like, we're in this together, I'm thinking, don't go too close to me. It's terrible. It's just a nightmare for, for us organisms that like are, we're swimming in, in these like social networks and our well-being totally depends on the quality of these connections. So I, I just think it's, it's a nightmare. And I really hope that um, this is over soon and we get medications and we get vaccines and like we can get on with, you know, pursuing happy and healthy lives. Yeah, absolutely. I can't echo all of the things that you said enough. I think this is really a unique circumstance. Obviously, we've never really faced something like this before. And it's so important to have conversations that normalize the kinds of reactions that we're having to this, whether that be anxiety or depression or or anything else on that spectrum um so i'm curious about how your personal mindfulness practice maybe has shifted or changed during this very different time um, and that might be useful for other people to hear who maybe are struggling a little bit with their maintaining their own personal practice or maintaining that momentum during what is a very strange time yeah so happy to speak to that um you know, I think that part of the issue is like, what are you referring to when you say um, mindfulness practice? So I continue to sit and, uh, you know, that's much, it's it's not as easy as it used to be uh, for a variety of reasons, especially because I have little kids. Um, so just having like 15, 20 minutes to myself is a huge luxury. Um, but I've been forced and had some really good uh, kind of guidance on this from some of my teachers. I've been forced to find uh, practices um, that allow me to keep my mindfulness practice alive uh, in other ways. And so um, I've really been into walking, both walking meditation and just walking period. I think it's um, incredibly important when we're activated in the way that we all are these days during the pandemic to use the energy, right? Because remember that... Um, our bodies, like the an anxiety reaction, is our body's attempt to uh, react to a threat, right? And so we're mobilizing all this energy, and then we just end up sitting in front of a computer screen. It's really insane. Um, so when I feel this upsurge in energy, I want to move, right? So I'm walking more. Um, I'm doing walking meditation. I'm feeling my leg muscles, you know, like do their thing as I walk down the street. Um, I'm I'm doing as many meetings as I can on the phone walking. Um, I, there's some meetings I have to do via Zoom, like with clients, but if I can just get on the phone with a colleague and do my meeting walking, I'm doing that. So like there's some days where I walk like three, four hours a day, just walking around the neighborhood on the phone. And I feel so much healthier and so much happier than I ever have because of all the physical activity I'm doing. Um, so that's been huge. And um I guess very, like much more broadly, um, I think that my mindfulness practice has um, created a very uh, tight and helpful kind of like calibration process where it's like, how am I feeling right now? Oh yeah, my neck is sore. I'm gonna go stretch. Or yeah, this has been a tough week. What's going on? I need to talk to my wife. And I'm just like very dialed in to the, the various things that are gonna be affecting my well-being. And um, I just make it a priority as much as I humanly can to recalibrate and, and adjust and correct course as often as I can.
Thank you so much for sharing those, what I see as tips. Um, I think, you know, the one thing that Zoom and doing everything online does afford us is that flexibility to be on the move and hadn't actually occurred to me, but that's a fantastic idea that I am going to start using as well. So I'm, I'm cognizant of the time um, and I, I think we're coming to our, the end of our time here, but I just have one last question. For those who are interested in the work that you're doing um, and the kinds of things that you're up to, how can they follow you either on if you have any social media or anything like that? So everything related to like what's happening at Mindspace, including some cool new developments we're getting into with psychedelics and uh, ketamine clinic opening soon, um, you can find at mindspacewellbeing.com. Um, I am somewhat active. I'm not a huge fan of social media, but I do, you know, put some stuff out there, um, as often as I can. So I have a Facebook page. It's Dr. Joe Flanders. Um, I, I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram. Instagram is just Joe Flanders. Um, and I've got a podcast which gets into these issues, uh, in depth with, uh, some, like really cool, well-known people all over the world, including some very important mindfulness people. Um, there's an amazing episode, by the way, um, about mindfulness and anxiety with a famous psychiatrist in the U.S. named Judson Brewer, uh, who is totally amazing. It's one of our uh, most popular episodes, so I highly recommend that. Um, so that's themindspacepodcast.com. And uh, I think that, that pretty much covers it. Amazing. I will be sure to link all of those things in the show notes. But thank you so much for this amazing conversation. I really, really appreciate your time. And um, I think there's a, a lot, a lot in here for people to benefit from listening to this. I really appreciate the invitation. And I'm happy to do it anytime. Amazing. Thank you. All right. Take care. This has been another episode of Mindfulness in Medicine, a podcast created for medical learners by medical learners at McGill University. Get show notes at themindfulmedicallearner.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, comment, and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or send us a message through the contact page on themindfulmedicallearner.com.